today is March 14th, 2023, and my guest is University of Utah Dean of Humanities, Hollis Robbins. Hollis writes frequently on the topic of higher education, drawing from a wealth of firsthand experience as a student, professor, and administrator that spans eight states, four academic disciplines, and a diverse range of institutions, both public and private. We will focus our discussion today on the American University and the state of campus life. Hollis, thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. Eight eight states. Goodness gracious. Uh, I hadn't counted them up in a while, so thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing your expertise today. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Let's start uh, my first question by talking about academic freedom. Many believe it is on the decline. As someone tasked with handling a lot of the relevant policies and disputes here, how do you assess the health of academic freedom at the moment? And what are the biggest challenges you face personally? Well, one of the first things, first of all, I'm really delighted to have this conversation. And uh, one of the one of the distinctions I'd like to make, first of all, is between academic freedom and free speech. Uh, I was uh, fortunate to participate in that Stanford Academic Freedom Conference uh, last November uh, at Stanford. Uh, and there were some really interesting guests there, some, some people who have made headlines for academic freedom disputes. Jordan Peterson was there. Amy Wax was there for Penn. Um, uh, Greg Lukanoff from FIRE was there. Um, one of my critiques of the discussion is that there hadn't been a dis- differentiation made clear between academic freedom, which is the freedom for faculty to both pursue a subject and uh, teach it in class. And this is an important bedrock of uh, universities across the globe, the idea that you give Uh, faculty, you give researchers uh, the freedom to pursue whatever line of inquiry they think will turn into, turn into gold, turn into innovations that will uh, allow humanity to progress. Um, So academic freedom has been upheld at American universities, at global universities for, you know, very long time. Free speech is uh, a right let's just say, um, First Amendment right to say what you'd like, but you can't say it everywhere. And it it isn't tied to universities. And much of the disputes that we've seen uh, bubble to the surface in terms of, you know, cancellations or violations are really free speech disputes. They're not academic freedom disputes. And I, as a dean, can talk about an academic freedom dispute, which is to say, you know, I've got faculty members who want to have a textbook that costs $300, but we have uh, policies of limiting costs, for example. That's not an academic freedom dispute, but it's more of an academic freedom dispute than a First Amendment dispute, uh, let's just say. or a faculty member might want to teach his or her own book, right, and uh, and accrue some uh, some profits there. And and again, I might raise my eyebrows, but that's perfectly within the realm of academic freedom. A faculty member came to me actually this morning, wanting to teach a uh, wanting to screen a a movie that's been sort of controversial, and his right to screen this film uh, is within again academic freedom. Now, if he does this and students protest, that's their free speech to protest, and 
at the Stanford conference, there was a, a great deal of deans need to step in and stop mobs. Well, I'm not going to stop a student's right to protest something. Um, I'm going to defend the faculty member's right to do something or research something or show something in class. So that's uh, a distinction I think should, that should continue to be, um, to be made clear. That's a very important background to have. I know kind of just as someone who's not administrating this all the time or not kind of getting into the nitty gritty details, I don't always make this distinction between kind of a general culture or kind of a feeling that that people have that, you know, that they are more or less free to speak or that they might not be safe bringing up certain topics and the actual like letter of the law that universities are tasked with with carrying out. How much though do you think the cultural elements might arise or, or flow out of uh, the campus environment in some way. I know that a common theory I, I hear is that cancel culture started on campus and then gradually kind of spread out to the rest of society, uh, that there's a bit of a lag period with any new uh, decrease in, in free speech or increase in censoriousness, and that ultimately traces back to the university. Do you, do you give any credence to that, or, or what would you say? Well, it's it's interesting because one of the, again, I think it's important to make a distinction on campus between the classroom space and everything else, right? Because if you think of the campus and if you think of um, schools generally as sort of this combination of educational space and social space, right? And what does that mean? that there are some spaces like the cafeteria, the dining hall, the dorm, the quad, where a certain kind of rule applies. And then there's the classroom where a different kind of rule applies. And I think one of the challenges on campuses right now, or what in this kind of conversation about, about free speech, um, is that distinctions aren't made for what's allowable or what is defendable or what I am going to defend as dean. I'm going to defend academic freedom and the freedom to query in a classroom, but the quad is something different. And, you know, I've written about uh, um, Mario Savio, you know, from the free speech movement in uh, 1964 at Berkeley, and this free speech movement was not in the classroom at all, right? It was the right to pamphlet about the war, about civil rights uh, in the plaza, right? So they were literally protesting on campus for the freedom for doing political speech outside the classroom. And I think that, again, that distinction is really, really important. Now, is there a relationship, right? It's not you know, you're if some young student is out in the quad and then they walk into the classroom, there isn't sort of some magic dust that says, well, you're in a different place now, right? But there is. And I think part of our, my duty as an administrator and part of uh, the duty of faculty member, but I also think the larger discourse is to make that clear. Absolutely. Well, one of the insightful points you made in your your op-ed piece about the Stanford conference was that really a lot of free speech grievances uh, coming from professors, uh, they, they can trace to 
expressions of someone else's free speech. And so prominently, I mean, very top of mind right now is social media and people have a pretty broad rights uh, under the first amendment to, to criticize, uh, criticize you in a lot of different ways, which could reduce your comfort speaking without violating any, any enforceable law or, or it wouldn't even necessarily be desirable to enforce such a law. Well, I think this this discourse of comfort um, is so interesting. One of the things that uh, I really in, enjoyed experiencing at the Stanford conference is that the discourse of trauma and discomfort was being articulated by people there who are usually people that poke fun at a different group of people articulating discomfort and trauma. Um, as a scholar of, of uh, Black history and Black literature, you know, most of my work, most of my scholarly work uh, addresses uh, uh, African-Americans who have felt like outsiders in classrooms and in certain spaces um, and have felt, you know, inability to speak up or discomfort and certainly trauma. So, and you hear this uh, articulations of this from um, a host of uh, individuals on the campus right now of different uh, gender, ethnicity or, or uh, orientation or, or what have you, to hear those same exact evocations of trauma and feeling suppressed um, from the right was a real interest. It was interesting to me um, because, you know, since when, I mean, on, one, on the one hand, it says, why should we, why should we assume belonging? Um, and then, the next moment, it's, I felt so traumatized, I didn't belong. <laughs> so um, perhaps we can help all of us try to avoid traumatic experiences in the classroom. One of the things that uh, I didn't have in my essay, but I spoke a lot about was, um, was just kindness and uh, civility to one another. And I think that uh, goes a long way. Yeah, I think that point is is really well taken, actually. Um over the past several years, I think I've I've seen uh, certain tables turn, and and you see this happens all the time in politics. Actually, if you're if you're paying attention, but but you see people on the left take arguments from the right, and you see people on the right take arguments from the left, and and you know it's uh, it's all moving back and forth, and it in a way it's um, it's really good for getting some clarity about what you know the, the merit behind some of these these principles because. Um, I, I, I guess I, I think back to, um, you know, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, testifying and a lot of people's perception of that, I, I think probably myself included just to some extent was that she didn't all, she didn't always come across as the most credible, uh, witness at times. And, and I think that, you could take that immediately and say, therefore, like there's there's nothing to this allegation. But another interpretation could be that perhaps she's genuinely traumatized in some way that impedes her from being her own best advocate. And that has kind of a, a left wing flavor to it. But I think it applies in all kinds of situations where I think people are inclined to dismiss uh, you know, right wing professors who are under siege as like, oh, they're just 
they're just a baby or they're just, uh, they have no validity to what they're experiencing. And, you know, that's not true either. Like it's, you, you can't just say that a priori it's, uh, you know, when you really look into some of these, these cases, there's, there are genuine, uh, you know, things to, to sympathize and, and understand there. I think it's quite clear uh, that Jordan Peterson has been traumatized by uh, what he has been through. Um, you know, one would hope that would uh, encourage an empathy with others' trauma. We will just see. Yeah, and um, I mean, you see this in, uh, broadly in all kinds of, um, I mean, stepping back from the, the trauma point a little bit, I've also seen more and more publications like First Things or or National Review make arguments along the lines of, well, now like the culture is really being dominated by women in higher education, for example, because uh, they're a majority of, of degree uh, winners or, or a majority of certain leadership positions. And, uh, you know, it, it is it is interesting. It does uh, speak to there being, uh, you know, a validity that was that was overlooked in in opposite side debates in the past. Well, it's it's a funny time in higher ed, and um, um, I didn't know if you were going to bring up Florida or some of what's happening. I, I will, yeah. Actually, uh, I was just going to get into that. Uh. Well, I'll let you pose the question then, because I'm I'm interested in that. Uh, yeah. So, so to press deeper into some of these things and make it a little bit more concrete, uh, I had basically one event, one recent event from each side of the aisle to look at and and get your thoughts. So uh, the first one actually happened just this week where there was this incident at Stanford Law with an appellate judge that was invited to speak. I I don't know if you saw this. Oh, I saw everything about it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, basically got shouted down and then the law school dean apologized. And then a lot of activists showed up to her classroom while she was teaching and basically intimidated her and the the few students who didn't join the protest. Um, what what steps do you think Dean should take in, in these types of situations? It seems like this clearly crosses a line between the right to protest and uh, and disruption and intimidation of other speech. Uh, what are your it, thoughts there? It was an interesting, and I don't know if I saw all of the videos. I saw a video of Judge Duncan, you know, sort of having a, a rough encounter with some students who clearly had some issues with his rulings. Um, I didn't know whether this was an actual class that they were required to be there um, or were there in order to protest. And again, this matters back to this question of whether something is an academic space or not, right? If somebody's giving a guest lecture, right, in a class where the assumption is this is a learning space and you're required to do be there, otherwise you lose points or something, then that's one kind of space. If it is an optional guest lecture um, of a person being invited by the Federalist Society, I, I believe, um, you know, it's a kind of quasi-academic space, right? You're not required to be there, and so you could just not show up. So that's the first sort of analysis that I would put in. Second of all, clearly, uh, there are strong feelings about his rulings. Um, The second video I saw was some shouting back and forth, and then uh, uh, a dean of students or a diversity dean, I'm I'm forgetting her name, came in and read a prepared prepared statement. Um, As a dean, uh, as an academic dean, uh, I thought that was odd. 
I thought that that was not clearly there were things that were prepared. Clearly, she was taking sides with the students and clearly she was not doing what an administrator should do, which is actually let us talk about the rules of the space. Is it an academic classroom or was this a quasi you know, was it a, uh, a different kind? Was it an, an extracurricular classroom? Um, and then I saw the apology letter from uh, signed by the, the law school dean, which is an academic dean, and the president of the university to the judge. Um, and that seemed to be fine, right? Uh, acknowledging that certain things shouldn't have happened. But I think the central point to get back to what I was saying earlier, what was this space, right? Because if this space was the kind of space that Mario Savio was fighting for, right? A kind of space to have political opinions or some sort of extracurricular uh, exchange, um, then everybody's got a right. It's a free for all. Everybody has a right to do what, what they want to do, right? You can protest, you can counter protest, even if it's held in a classroom. But if it's educational space that's part of the curriculum, a different set of rules apply. And, um, and I think that would have made a lot of things clearer. Gotcha. I, I, I take your response as speaking primarily to the initial uh, speaking event uh, that was protested. And I, I take your point that that protesters have a lot of rights uh, to to voice their opposition to uh, particular viewpoints as well. If it's not I, a classroom, right? Right, uh, right. Right. Let's define what it was. Was this a was this a quad, but it's inside the classroom, or was this an actual curricular space with curricular uh, goals in mind? And that was not clear to me. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense, and and I I think I'm mostly with you there. Um, uh, let me clarify. Uh, I, I was actually mostly thinking of uh, the very most recent events where oh. there was there was a reaction to the apology. And so the law school dean also teaches um, her own constitutional law class. And apparently student activists arrived in her classroom and were masked and um, and when, you know, glaring at her and the other students and and posting, you know, things all over the, the classroom to disrupt. And then, and then when she finished teaching, basically uh, a large percentage of like the broader law class, not just that one classroom, um, they were, they were there and they formed a human corridor, um, mm. like basically shepherding them from the exit of the classroom to the shep to the exit of the building. And they like basically forced them to do like a walk of shame through a lot of a lot of protesters. Uh, did, what uh, so would you add to that, that follow-up? Yeah, I was going to say, I did not see this. So protesting an actual curricular classroom has, you know, I would not stand for that. But, you know, what are you going to do if you can't say, look, you're breaking the rules here. People are going to break the rules. Uh, but that I would find out of line, right? Because somebody, part of, part of uh, attending university or law school is it's a contract, right? Right. And these contracts are, uh, are upheld by the Department of uh, Education by the if you're taking any federal money, right, which means you have to teach your class, it has to be this many weeks, you have to actually deliver what the student has paid, right. So like, you know, 
in an emergency and floods and fires and things, you can't shut down a, a, a institution because uh, you have to continue to deliver instruction somehow because students have paid for it. So to d disrupt the delivery of a service uh, is, is, is a bad thing, right? Uh, call it a kind of theft of somebody's educational opportunity. So that's one thing. The walk of shame, you know, once you step outside the classroom, if nobody's physically hurt, it's probably very, very annoying. But I, I, I think, you know, it's tough being, it's tough being a dean. And at some point in time, you know, there's a, uh, the president of uh, Connecticut College, I believe, is under fire uh, right now with students calling her for her to step down uh, because of holding a fundraiser in a place in uh, uh, Florida with a with a segregation history. Um, these things happen. Um, is she okay? So far as I've heard, I think she's uh, wasn't physically harmed. I'm not sure that she's had any official response to it yet. I'll take a look, but but I would again. I think it's really important that we make distinctions between the classroom space and the extracurricular space because there's free speech in one, but there's, you know, a paid delivery of curriculum in the other. Gotcha. So considering a, an incident on, on coming from the other side of, of the aisle, uh, we could talk about the new college takeover in Florida. So in January, as you know, yep. uh, Governor Ron DeSantis replaced six of the 13 members on the school's board of trustees in an effort to transform the institution into the Hillsdale of the South, which I don't think were his words, but one of his uh, representatives. Right. Uh, what troubles you about this event and what does it portend for the future? Well, no, nothing. It's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated story. So I was, I was asked to apply for that presidency. Um, and I did, I wrote a letter and, you know, submitted my application materials. I didn't get an interview. That's fine. These things happen. Um, but in my letter was a really big paragraph about what it would mean to be the president of New College Florida with this administration, right? What it would mean to be a liberal arts college, a very well-respected public liberal arts college that's paid for by taxpayers, right, in this political climate, right? Because if you're a public institution, I'm in a public institution now, my last institution in the Cal State system was a public institution, you should always be cognizant that taxpayers are, are paying this and that you are part of, you are a government employee. The fact that she, I happen to have seen uh, her letter, uh, Patricia Oker's letter, um, because if you apply for things, then you get access to other, you know, and she mentions nothing about the state capitol or the legislature or the governor. She mentions nothing that this is a taxpayer funded college. And, and I'm not saying, you know, that her loss of her position was deserved, but she had an opportunity, I think, to engage. I mean, everybody saw this coming, right? To talk about the value of a liberal arts education, to talk about the value of being part of the public system, to engage at a pretty high level. And she didn't. Well, why, why do you think um, 
I mean, you you don't know, you have no inside knowledge as to to why she she didn't do that, but why do you think she she may have declined to take that opportunity? Well, I think if there's a you know, if I have one complaint, um, like about some recent, you know, like in the New Yorker piece or other pieces that are around about the decline in the humanities or, you know, uh, the problem of the liberal arts or, you know, problems with climate on campus. Um, so let me, let me, let's talk about the Hillsdale's part, or let's talk about the creation of that um, University of Austin, right? There's this sort of produced narrative that, you know, liberal arts is so messed up, we need a place that is going to have old fashioned fundamental values and enough of this sort of woke liberal humanities education, right? And if you look at the, the history of New College, which, you know, I've had a, a number of, of, of friends who have, have gone there. So, you know, it's got been, it's obviously very left. Um, but that doesn't mean the education isn't good. There's a creation of this, this sort of discourse that being left and being, having a classical fundamental education are sometimes, are somehow at odds. People say, I'm going to get away from X and I'm going to go back to the classics. Well, frankly, there's no better place to discuss lgbtq issues than greek literature yeah i can i can kind of see that <laughs> right i mean it, it, there's no better place to discuss uh gender fluidity than a shakespeare class right right yeah historically there are antecedents right. to some degree yeah <laughs> right and so you know i'm i'm launching a great books program here at uh at the University of Utah in in our uh, in our College of Humanities, and it's you know it's a fantastic course. We've got you know Kafka, we've got Baldwin, we've got some Virginia Woolf, um, and it's an opportunity for our students to study great works of literature. But because we're we're not we're studying great works of literature, we're also dealing with the humanities questions of the day about race and gender uh, and belonging. Right? These are not an easy. This is not either or. Right. And, it, and, you know, I'm certainly dodged a bullet not being at uh, not being at New College, Florida. But that's what I would have said or that's what I was hoping. Right. To be said that there are ways that that we don't have to think about this as either or. And I think some of the discourse coming out, out of from the new board members about turning it into a Hillsdale. Well, what does that actually mean? What does that mean about the quality of instruction that you're delivering? What does that mean about about the uh, about the knowledge base of your faculty? This is not a left right question. It's just a framing question. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see how these debates that start out kind of ostensibly about maximizing the student experience and improving the generation of knowledge. Sometimes it kind of dovetails into efforts that are more geared towards sort of taking down education, I would say. Um, and, and there was, uh, oh, you can go ahead if you like. Well, I was just going to say, you know, uh, James Weldon Johnson's great anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, was, was uh, sung at the, at the Super Bowl. 
uh, this past year, right? And, you know, some critiques of why was this, what's called the Black National Anthem sung. Well, James Weldon Johnson spent a great deal of time in Florida learning Greek and Latin. This is in 1888 uh, from a shoemaker by the light of an oil lamp, right? There, you know, this idea that uh, diverse literature is somehow not classical fundamental humanities uh, is not caught up in that in those same concerns about learning and timeless texts, right? That's a matter of what of people not understanding, like who James Weldon Johnson was and why he wrote um, that particular song and his educational background of thinking that it was going to be very important for, to him uh, to find a tutor in Florida to teach Greek and Latin when he was home quarantined from some illness. Um, there's these ideas that, that um, you know, Peter Thiel talks about this all the time and, you know, from the 1980s, uh, the sort of uh, polluting the core curriculum, the, the Western sieve with multicultural texts um, is a ridiculous, frankly, uh, is a ridiculous charge when some of the texts that, you know, he was opposed to, like I, Rigoberto Manchu, is actually a very Burkean, in some ways, very right wing text, right? If you if you read it and you take it seriously, right? That that texts about American freedom, texts about uh, liberty, about equality, right? About striving, right? About you know having a place of one's own to farm, right? Uh, these are not simply Western texts; they appear everywhere. Yeah, I, I totally buy into that. I, I think, I mean, clearly, like, uh, just just fundamentally, when talking about concepts of, of freedom and rights, uh, a lot of that uh, is is very helpfully informed by by African American history and um, a lot of the things that, that you've written about and, and studied uh, with respect to the abolition movement. Um, yeah, and and so. so yeah, there's ways that, you know, this, you know, again, especially in Florida or elsewhere to say, look, the the book, I, I the anthology I put out in 2017 with Henry Lewis Gates Jr., the 19th century uh, African-American women writers, right? Almost every, I would call most of the texts, 52 women um, who wrote, who we compiled in that book and the texts that they wrote are very conservative uh, today in terms of what they wanted, education, family, freedom, autonomy, justice, rights, right? These are the same things that our founders, you know, the nation's founders wanted, right? This, the idea that a text that I wrote with women who are basically wanting what everybody wants uh, somehow could be banned is crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy, um, you know, and, and you think about uh, Tocqueville's um, uh, Tocqueville's great book, Tocqueville, uh, Democracy in America. He famously never spoke to a black woman in his tour around uh, mm. around uh, 
the United States. He talked to men, he talked to black men, he talked to women, but no black women, right? And so part of what I, I've all, when I read from the book is, is to suggest if you're going to teach democracy in America, you should teach this anthology and you'll see resonances between, uh, between these two texts. Gotcha. Um, I, I, take a lot of what you're saying as uh as very true and valuable um if i were to to push back just a little bit i, I feel like i feel like you framed it almost as um kind of a matter of a matter of kind of directly accessing the these texts and and people are just ignorant of you know the value that can come uh out of out of these approaches and and i think there's probably something to that um, the whole reason why you go to, to college is because there are things that you don't know and you can be, you know, you can learn new things in that vein, of course. But I feel like the fundamental issue for a lot of people is not, is not as much the content in the way that you're talking about as it is kind of a matter of, of trust. And, and just gradually over time, the people that are, are teaching and kind of propounding their own viewpoints and interpreting these texts, they're not helping you to see how Burke was actually a really great thinker that, and there's like merit to conservative ideas, they're, they're approaching it in a tendentious way. And it's, it's perceived as, you know, there's really no space for someone to explore um, conservative uh, interpretations or, or non-woke interpretations to different things, or to challenge the orthodoxy based on the curriculum. And, and it's really almost more a matter of, of personnel. Uh, what, what would you say to that? Well, you know, you, you raise a good point. That's a good pushback, in fact. And, and, and there's a way to say, to go back to the porous boundaries between the classroom and everything else, right? Because at a certain point, I can, you know, say all these things and believe all these things in a, in a, in a university space, in an academic space, right? But then I can walk outside where there's yet another police shooting of a black man, right? With George Floyd, or I was in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins when Freddie Gray was murdered uh, and the protests that erupted thereafter. Uh, because at a certain point, um, racism and police violence uh, occur, right? This, these are also facts of American life. And it puts pressure on having certain conversations in the classroom as much as I'm sitting here talking about distinctions between a classroom space and what happens outside, um, there are there are classroom spaces that I think easily lend themselves to the politics of what's going on outside because you're already discussing, let's say, lynching, right? And um, it's not going to happen in a chemistry class, perhaps. It's not going to happen um, in the history of of Chinese empire, you know, but it will happen in an American history class or literature class. Um, and it affects the teaching of texts um, such that they are politicized uh, and they're politicized forward uh, to, to 2020 or 21 or 2022 or 23, right? They're not looking backwards to Burke, even though they might have been written in an evocation of Burke. Um, they're, they're, they're pressed into service about today's problems. Uh, and, you know, that, that will happen. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the answer to that is, 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 is wishing perhaps, or wondering what can be done uh, to address racism and violence in America. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Um, you do you still think, want to push back though? You can still, yeah, push. yeah. It's, uh, I guess in, in some ways what you're saying deepens, deepens the, the problem potentially of having kind of a, a monolithic, uh, culture or like having a, an agenda setting, um, you know, power being not really, not really shared. It's perceived as, as being completely controlled by kind of whatever MSNBC is talking about and not, not uh, kind of admitting uh, other angles. Uh, I mean, of course you have, you know, you have various people in the economics profession that, that have challenged uh, certain narratives about, about racial profiling or about police violence and the, they have very hard time. They have a very hard time creating any sort of space for for a discussion there, which which seems like an even more all the more important discussion to have, given the controversies happening in the present, as as you described. Well, I mean, you go back to this question of the ivory tower, right? You know, the ivory tower. You know, it's it it is both uh, sort of an insult, right, to say you're not paying attention to what's going on in the streets. Right. And then you can make the complaint about a university that it's not ivory tower enough. Right. That all it is doing is reacting to what's happening on the streets. Right. I think and I think this has been a, you know, a challenge for universities forever. Right. We we certainly cannot, uh, you know, when you read a text you know, when you read some Lionel Trilling, for example, you know, the great critic and and you realize, you know, when he's writing and the things that he's writing about were happening at the same time when Martin Luther King was uh, was agitating. And you think, you know, were you not noticing that when you talk about, you know, Americans striving for freedom? You know, how is it you, uh, you know, if, or you read the Atlantic monthly from 1896 or in the 1890s, right, after Plessy versus Ferguson, after a really huge rise in lynchings, right? And it publishes all sorts of things about, you know, Italian freedom fighters, and isn't it glorious people fighting for their freedom? And you think, are you paying no attention? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well taken. Um so you mentioned the, the University of Austin um, and, and, and you made various kind of conceptual critiques of, of the way that they frame their approach. Uh, I wonder what you think about the, the broader enterprise of creating new universities to compete with the existing lot. And if you were to embark on a project like that, how would it differ from what Pano Canelos and others are building at University of Austin? I guess the real question is what is excellence, right? And and you know, there's they're saying that something is too left or too, too right or to this or to that, right? But you know, left out of that conversation is excellence, right? If I were starting a new university, which I have no interest in doing, right? But you know, if I did, the question isn't who's been tossed out at previous institutions right? The question is, who's really, really good? And what do we mean by really good? Who is, who is 
changing the conversation. What faculty members are um, pulling knowledge or pushing knowledge into new in new directions. Um, you know, that's yeah. that to me, even as a dean, is my primary responsibility when I, you know, grant a faculty member a sabbatical to go finish a book, right? Or I give a, a faculty member funding to go visit an archive somewhere. Like, what are you doing to really push knowledge forward? What are you doing that nobody else is thinking of? You know, there's one sort of thing in the humanities, um, you know, certainly this makes more sense in some ways to your listeners from the sciences, but there is such a thing as new knowledge, right? Um, my, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Paul Reeves' new book, Let's Talk About Race and Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking of Richard Reeves. Oh, wait, wait. Let me, let me just get the, so I'll show it to you. It's, um, Paul Reeve, he's a faculty. Oh, okay. There was um, an article I think you tweeted about this. Yeah. So he's um, he's the chair of the history department here, and um, this is Deseret Books. It's not a uh, it's not an academic press, um, but he wanted to to write about. Uh, they asked him, "Do you want to write about race and and the LDS uh, Church?" And he said, "Sure, but I'd like to make." this speech by Brigham Young from 1852, kind of the center of the book. And I'm not telling this story completely right, but they said something like, what speech? <laughs> He's like, well, <laughs> let me tell you about this speech, right? And it had been taken down in Pittman shorthand, right? Which is, you know, lots of things in the uh, in the 19th century were taken down that way. And- The faster know, way of taking notes, basically. Certainly, right? yes, exactly. Um, uh, certainly better than any note-taking <laughs> software now, um, you know, but he had turned the speech into sentences and paragraphs and in the history and, and um, understood that, in fact, the history of, of, of race in the LDS church, if you go back to Joseph Smith, and I don't need to be telling you this, right, is the, is the, you know, God sees, God doesn't see individuals or doesn't see people, everybody's welcome. You know, there are no distinctions um, versus. Right. Yeah, he, bapti he baptized uh, and ordained black. Yeah. Black yeah, members. Yeah. Right. So when did this, when did this change happen that banned um, black members from the priesthood? Well, it basically happened with Brigham Young and it basically was put forward in this speech and it basically changed everything in, until the revelations of 1978. Right. And, you know, the amount of work required to do this and patience and working with librarians and having the trust, right, of, of you know, keepers of knowledge um, and writing a very, very emotional and compelling book about the history of, of basically solidifying racist views that were not in accordance um, with the original principles, setting it out, you know, chapter by chapter uh, and saying, look, we've got to undo this, right? And here's the history and here's what, what it shows. Well, that takes a certain amount of training, right? That takes a certain amount of understanding your larger conceptual framework of, of race and what this means, understanding history and book publishing, right? This wasn't going to be an academic press. Um, but I, I bring this up to say, this is a book, you know, a slim book, 
that will change knowledge. It will change, it may change uh, a heck of a lot of things about, about this particular uh, religious community, community going forward, right? What you want in a faculty are researchers or professors who are going to do that. Yeah, I definitely uh, see the point that merit could be more directly emphasized rather than um, rather than just diversity of opinion for its own sake, of course, because, I mean, you could pick, of course, random people off the street and they would have, you know, diverse opinions in some sense, but wouldn't necessarily have the, the ability to forward human knowledge. Um, that, that said, I, I feel like a lo- there are a lot of pretty interesting and accomplished thinkers that are involved with the University of Austin. Are, are there any that stand out to you as being people that you would put in that category of, of really forwarding, forwarding knowledge and it being well, important that they... I don't know. I mean, I, I've, the names that I've seen uh, have not... Uh, I'm not sure I know enough to know whether they're the leading lights in their field. Um, I have been very lucky, um, you know, over the last 20 years to work with uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., who is the leading light of African-American studies. Um, Pretty much, I mean, there are many, many wonderful scholars, uh, but, you know, in terms of creating an academic discipline, in in terms of the, the number of fellowships and scholars and students and generations that he has supported, that has created, right, the field, the number of books with his name on it, right? So my standard of, of excellence is admittedly very, very high. Um, so is anybody close to that height? I don't think so. Um, Henry Louis Gates himself has, of, of course, has actually faced cancellation pressure. Um, so it's it's interesting you you mentioned him. What what um, like I I could maybe connect this to something you said earlier. I found interesting. You were talking about um, an outsider perspective, and I think in many ways you kind of kind of embody that outsider perspective because you are. Uh, a leading scholar in the area of African American studies, and and you're not African American yourself. You're uh, you're a white woman, which I, I, at least in some settings, I feel like is is sort of pushed against, or or it feels like there might be an extra barrier there. Uh, how how do you um, how would you kind of react to that? Well, it's it has been a it, it's been a bit of a challenge, and I had some worries. Um, early on in my in my career, I mean, I was I was in my fourth year of a five year program PhD program at Princeton when I met uh, Gates and started working with him on this book on uh, a narrative he'd, he'd found by an enslaved woman named H- Hannah Crafts, and um, completely changed fields. Which let me just tell you to any young person in a PhD program, do not change yeah. fields. It's hard to do under any circumstances. Yeah, no, it's just, it's it's no good. Um, but my particular uh, expertise is in the Western literature that Black writers in the 19th century were reading, right? And 
so, you know, to understand, I mean, one of my, how I got to know Gates is he had found this narrative um, and this woman, this writer, Hannah Crafts, who we uh, eventually identified, a scholar named Greg Hekimovich identified in 2013, he found her, um, was uh, cribbing from Charles Dickens, right? She was writing at one point in her uh, in her discussion of her experience, she was describing um, slave huts, uh, right? The really squalid conditions in which she was living. Um, and she borrows and sort of signifies with taking changing some words of um, Dickens's uh, description of the London slums from his novel Bleak House, right? And part of the story of this this wonderful writer is how she came to know Dickens, which she had overheard some recitations, it turns out, um, enough times because, you know, that's what you used to do in school is have to recite long, long passages. Um, and recognizing something in his, in Dickens's telling that described her reality. Um, that's interesting, right? And so I started working with him on that book but then you know we did an edition of uncle tom's cabin together looking at you know how that how that very complicated no novel operated um and the reactions to it and then other books that that we've done together right now we're doing um a book on phyllis wheatley and who's you know an 18th century poet who's who writes who quotes dryden right who quotes pope who quotes Milton, right? So if you don't, if you're not really steeped in that tradition, you can't really understand those works of writing. And so there's not a lot of people who do this particular kind of work. So I have a little niche. I, I think that's a, that's a great example of a piece of, of knowledge that's valuable and interesting. Um, I mean, just recognizing that there's this, this very deep connection between African-American uh, tradition uh, in literature and Charles Dickens is uh, is a great contribution that that you wouldn't have been able to to make if you you know if you had been kind of shut out from from entering into that area of study. Do, if you were starting out today, do you think that it would be possible to to make that kind of transition? No, and and I think the the thing is, you know, where I am an outsider, I'm not sure I would call myself that, is I, I see myself at this pivot point with these two conversations, because on the one hand, I'm fairly old fashioned in both my education and my training, right, being, you know, my PhD at Princeton is very much in 19th century British and American literature. I mean, you can't get more traditional than that. But when I moved into the field of African American literature, I saw how it wasn't very different. I mean, there are things that are very different, but passionate fights for freedom and autonomy and bodily autonomy and rights. When you read Frederick Douglass, you realize this is one of the most American works of literature that can be imagined. And yet it is left off any, so many, you know, Western tradition, you know, lists. And to me, that is just, you know, that's it's a, a tragedy. Point. Yeah, it's, 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 tragedy. it's great writing. It's extremely historically significant. Yeah, I right. think so, Frederick so, Douglass is awesome. Yeah, right. So what so what what's that about? Right. Right. That's a different. And Henry Louis Gates had a piece in the in the in the New York Times recently about 
you know, the effort to keep the curriculum white for a long time, right? And so efforts to push back against that um, are no different. You started out by saying, you know, the discourse of the left and the discourse of the right begin to begin to, you know, often they kind um, of meld and switch places. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, you know, for one wishes that one could go back to Peter Thiel in the 1980s at Stanford and say, you know, read a little Douglas. You'd like him. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, standing up for him a little bit, he did speak uh, to Jerry Bowyer about um, this topic to some extent. He was, he was pushing back, I think, against a lot of, a lot of this idea that, you know, now because we're in this like dispute to this culture war that therefore we're gonna like we're gonna almost forget about important lessons from the holocaust or we're gonna forget about important lessons from african-american history we're gonna deny that racism exists which is i mean of course racism exists and we shouldn't uh deny um that that's the case but but i think that uh to a lot of to a lot of people they just feel that the education system is so kind of at odds with their their values and and viewpoints that it's it's hard for them to see that it's hard for them not to see it as the enemy and I think that's where a lot of it's coming from. It, it was interesting uh, in your 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 panel discussion during the free speech conference. Uh, Greg Lukianoff was was on that discussion with you, and at one point, um, I mean, I thought. I mean, a lot of the discussion was like very kind of to the point of what FIRE is doing and how how FIRE um, helps professors in, in certain circumstances to uh, overcome violations of their uh, their scholarship. But but at one point, there was a little bit of like a tangent where he started talking about like education signaling theory and uh, the idea that education is actually not at the end of the day contributing very much of a value, which I thought was kind of an interesting, I mean, it's, it's neither here nor there, like in the, in the free speech discussion to an extent, but I feel like you see as time has gone on, more and more people are kind of, I don't know if it's kind of a, like coping to an environment where they don't feel welcome in higher education, or they don't feel like education is trying to help them specifically. And that makes them kind of more receptive to the idea that education is just not adding a lot of value in general, or that it's not a noble enterprise. But, but I did think it was kind of, kind of revealing of, of where a lot of, a lot of people, where people are thinking at this moment. Well, I think in some ways, again, you know, I think about this and thinking about chat GPT or GPT-4 now, right? We've got these machines that have just an incredible amount of knowledge, right? Just an incredible amount of knowledge. You know, I don't need to look something up. I got Wikipedia. I can ask GPT. I don't, you know, I don't need to memorize my state capitals anymore or what have you, right? But at the same, so what is it that higher ed is doing, right? What is it that, what is the value added that we're having? And that we're offering, that we're we're giving, um, you know, what difference are are we making, right? Now you're at a PhD program. Um, when you do, you have to do a dissertation. Yeah. And what what is your dissertation going to be on? Do you think it's uh, it's not uh, not determined yet? Um, I have some ideas, but not. Um... It's all good, right? Yeah. Do you? But is is the pressure on you in a finance degree to do original work? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. 
Right. So, so this question of what is actual original work, what are you doing that nobody has done before or nobody has thought of before, or you've got a data set that is new, right? This question of newness, right, of actually pushing the edges of knowledge, right, is what you are being trained for, right? And good faculty will keep doing that, right? I, I would, I can't even imagine writing a book that does the same thing, right? If somebody's going to write a book on Shakespeare right now, it better darn well say something, right? Which is really hard when you're talking about somebody like Shakespeare, right? Because so much has been written on. A lot of the work that I've done with, with Skip Gates is on newly found texts that nobody has ever done anything on. So, you know, the bar is, is a little lower because we're the first people that say something about something, right? I think the people that critique higher ed don't generally have a real grasp about what originality is and what progress is and why it matters to always be marching to the edge and beyond of what is known, right? And, you know, I, I, I will also say, um, you know, trying to be trying to be optimistic and pleasant here. Um, there's a fair number of faculty member teaching in some excellent universities as we speak, who are not as interested in originality as they were when they were finishing their PhD program. That's the job of a dean. Right. The job of a dean is like, hello, <laughs> can you please go back to being original? Can you can you have that? you know, spark of an idea that's been sitting there because you've got a high teaching load and you're tired and you've got too much advising. Can you can you go there, please? Um, can you really think of yourself as cutting edge again? Um, and that's what I try to do. How does uh, how does that last point relate to discussions about tenure reform and peer review? Well, again, I mean, I think the the issue is, you know, what counts as new um, and what counts as, you know, as, as, as peer review. And I do a lot of reading of applications for various, um, you know, fellowships, prestigious fellowships. And, you know, I read 10 or 15 applications uh, every semester. And you know, there's not, I would say it's a it's definitely a minority of people who are even position themselves as doing new work. There's a lot of, there's a lot of faculty that put themselves forward as doing important social justice work. And there's nothing wrong with that. Social justice work is great, right? But can it be new and, and focused on social justice? Can, can we focus on the newness part of it? What are you doing that other people haven't done yet? Right. Um, so that's what I'm pushing. Right. Tenure tenure should be about newness and continued focus on that kind of excellence. What what lessons should the Academy draw from ChatGPT uh, going forward and how can we harness it in a way that creates more new and original research in, in contrast to re regurgitated, but uh, 
grammatically correct text. Well, it's so funny. So when I asked it once, uh, I said, yeah, how, how influential is Hollis Robbins on the Emperor's New Clothes? Um, it actually said, given my background and my scholarship, it said that I wrote an important piece on race and uh, the Emperor's New Clothes. Um, that, you know, that I was talking about like royal privilege, white privilege, and those people who don't have access to that kind of fine tapestry woven and that the uh, final scene was the young boy calling out, you know, privilege of the king. Now, I never wrote that. I never wrote anything like that, but I could have. Right. Maybe you will. Maybe I will now. (laughs) So it was sort of it was sort of funny. Um, it was just funny to, to, to see what kinds of assumptions it makes, a kind of scholarship minority report. What will I write next? <laughs> um, so maybe I can sort of put, put some of my faculty members' previous works into chat GPT in it, or, chat, or GPT-4 and say, what should this, this person write next? Maybe it'll tell you what your dissertation topic should be. I'll ask it every day. Um, <laughs> it's really to, excellent. To, to, I mean, I, I'm so supportive. And I've been working with some of the folks at Anthropic and got access to um, their model called Claude a couple of months ago and compared, you know, what the guardrails on are, what it allows to ask, what it, where it doesn't want to go. It's been really, and, you know, I don't know if I've been as helpful to them as they are to me. Um, but I've tried to, you know, articulate the position, which I think I'm in a minority position of academic of humanities deans in not being worried. Excellent. So uh, you mentioned the the emperor's new clothes. Uh, so this might be a fun way to to wrap up. I I love your Straussian reading of of the emperor's new clothes. I actually attended your seminar with uh, interintellect on the subject. And I was wondering what connections or or interpretations you might be able to draw from that fable with respect to free speech. Oh, in respect to free speech, that's a good way. That's a good question to ask. Um, uh, You know, uh, there's one of the reasons that one says, you know, there isn't there isn't free speech in the classroom is right. There isn't, you, you can't get up and say anything. You can't do anything. It's got to be within a, uh, um, you know, within uh, the sort of bounds of polite academic inquiry. And uh, years ago, there was this, you know, the story of the, the, some absent-minded math physics professor, what have you, who would, you know, write chalk on the blackboard and just by the end of it, he'd just be covered and just white chalk dust and just like wiped all over him, right? And students never said anything, right? They would just make fun of him behind his back, but never said anything during class. Like, you know, you're kind of got chalk you're, everywhere. You're a mess. You're a mess, right? And um, years later, you know, the professor said, like, I did that on purpose. Hmm. Right? Because they're not speaking right? You get in habits of not speaking. You get in habits of listening, of deciding, you know what, in in another setting, I might say, buddy, you're kind of a mess, but here I'm here to learn physics. And that self-silencing, right, 
was actually good for the classroom for for learning right apparently he was a very successful teacher and you know students remembered a heck of a lot that was going on and i think about that deliberate non-speech which is different from where we started right we started on sort of self-suppression suppressing speech as a bad thing as a testimony to like things are bad in higher ed people aren't don't feel like they have free speech in the classroom well you know in my reading of the emperor's new clothes time passed merrily in the land as anderson wrote like things were going pretty good and if all it mattered, if all that mattered to get transparent government to actually work was not pointing out the transparency of his clothes. Is that may not be such important? a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. A speech isn't always the single most important thing. <laughs> Alice Robbins, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Um, I'd like to recommend that People go to your Twitter account. You always have interesting things to say. You keep up with all the latest uh, discussions and, and topics from, from tech to, to literature to, to race relations. And uh, really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. This has been really fun. Thank you.